do get to spend some of my time as a volunteer with a uh, police unit. I've been a volunteer police chaplain for 27 years, and I'm not a police officer, but some of the guys that I hang out with are on the SWAT team. I it always hesitate to say you have a green light in any situation because that tells a sniper they can pull a trigger, and I'm always nervous about that. Thank you guys, number one, for forgiving me for not being able to make that uh, speaking engagement. I've only missed three in my career, and I've been very fortunate not to have to cancel very much or not just mess up and not go somewhere. But uh, last year, my, we were in Orlando doing a parenting seminar, and my legs started tingling a little bit. I'm active, so sometimes I do things that a guy my age shouldn't do, so I stretched it out, twisted my back, went to a chiropractor. It went from stinging to burning, and then it went from burning to I couldn't use it. I did the last night of the seminar standing in the aisle with my foot hung up on the podium to keep weight off of it. And then when we finished, we were going from Orlando to Rome, Georgia, for Jackie to coach in a tournament and then to Huntsville. So we did that car truck trip with a ruptured disc, and then I crawled around the house for about 12 days. And finally, somebody looked at an MRI and said, can you have surgery tomorrow? And I said, yes, sir, you can cut my leg off tomorrow if you want to. But I'm healed up. He said it was a simple procedure, and we've been blessed to continue to be active and, and do the things we do. One of the things that I've been doing to be active is I've always had a hobby. Uh, I had a PE teacher in high school, and... Every semester, he would do something different. He didn't just throw us a ball and tell us to go hurt each other. He would instruct us. He taught a semester on tennis, fundamentals of basketball, fundamentals of football, fundamentals of tumbling. And one, one semester, my junior or maybe early in my senior year, he brought an FBI agent in and did an entire six weeks on self-defense. Now, I'm not much of a traditional athlete, uh, but that interested me. And this young man from, the, from Quantico had been an Oxford graduate, and he came in. So I've pursued through my life a little bit of interest in self-defense and, and martial arts. And my primary interest in, in martial arts is, is Brazilian jiu-jitsu. Now, if you've never heard of that, don't, don't panic. But uh, I regularly work out with some guys. Uh, the young man who teaches the Tuesday class is a professional cage fighter. And he's all you want to handle. I mean, it's, it's, it's unbelievable uh, how quick and how fast this young man is. But the guy who's the main instructor will get on this month is this is a, a series of moves or a technique that we're going to do. And the first three weeks of the month, he teaches you how to use this technique. And the last week of the month, he says if this technique is used on you, how to defend it. That's what I'm going to do about the tongue tonight. See, we are users of our tongue, but we are consumers of other people's use of the tongue. And I sort of stand alone on this a little bit because I firmly believe that your words only have the power I give them. You can't make me mad. You can't make me happy. You can't make me cheat. You can't make me drink. You can't make me kill myself, and you can't make me leave the church. Because if you could do those things in the negative, you could do those things in the positive. If I could make you cheat, I could make you faithful. If I could make you happy, I could make you sad. If I could make you leave the church, I'd make you sit here every Sunday morning. If I could make you kill yourself, I could keep you alive. And so sometimes we talk about the power of the tongue, and the Bible warns us as tongue users to be very, very careful how we use our tongues. 
But honestly, it's more important as a tongue consumer that I understand my responsibility for I handle your words. Romans chapter 1 verse 16. I am not ashamed of the gospel. Why? It is the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes. As powerful as the word of God is, I can choose to ignore it and it have no effect in my life. As powerful as the advent of the crucifixion and the resurrection and the redemption of sin was, if I don't become a believer in that, I still have a sin problem. If I don't access God's faith, God's mercy and God's grace through faith, I believe in God's word, it doesn't do me any good. If God's words are limited, and I'll use that in quotations because the because eventually God's word will be proven to be true, but it'll be too late for a person who doesn't believe. But if God's word is limited by my response to it or your response, then your words are definitely in that category. And my words are too. So when we talk about discouragement, I want to talk about two things. Let's not be people who discourage. Yet when somebody is discouraging to us, how do we handle that? Let's look in Deuteronomy chapter 1. What you've got in Deuteronomy chapter 1 is a review of one of the gravest mistakes that a group of people ever made. And the grave mistake they made was they ignored what God had said and they ignored what God had done and they believed discouraging words. They believed some things some men said and they really believed some things that men said would happen. Deuteronomy chapter 1 verse 22. Now every one of you came near to me and said, Let us send men before us. Let them search out the land for us and bring back word to us by the way which we should go up of the cities into which we shall come. So the children of Israel have traveled 250 miles. They've gone from Egypt. They've traveled the sandy coastline. They avoided Philistine territory. They avoided a, 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 a scorching hot desert to get to the edge of the promised land. And when they and this is why they're here. This is why they're there. They've gone 250 miles and they've come to the edge of the territory that God said, I will give you. Now, he didn't just say, I will give you. He said, I'm going to give you houses to live in that you did not build. I'm going to give you vineyards to eat from you did not plant. I'm going to give you wells to drink out of that you did not dig. The houses that I give you will be furnished. God said, I prepared this place for you before you were born. I don't know if you know how long it takes to build a house or to make a vineyard grow or to get a well to work. But God said, when these people built these things, dug these things, and planted these things, it was my intention to give them to you. All you had to do was show up. And they come all this way and on the verge of getting the promise, they go, whoa, 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 we're not sure. We want somebody to go in and look at it and make sure it's everything that was advertised. And so they send these 12 guys. We call them the 12 spies because their function was to go into the land and look at it. But don't think in terms of spy. Think in terms of ranger. These guys take a 40-day patrol. Uh, we've got a buddy, uh, Halo Fernandez. He is the son-in-law of Brother Jack Zorn the Lance to Leaders guy, and he's been on the Appalachian Trail since February the 18th. 
and he's walking in his own power from Springer Mountain, Georgia, somewhere up in Maine. He's been on the trail a hundred and something days living out of his backpack. Now, on the Appalachian Trail, there are what they call trail angels. People will meet you there and give you a ride into town. You can mail yourself packages and stop at a local post office and get some new shoes or you can send stuff home. There's all, these guys leave their camp and they go into enemy territory and they live off the land for 40 days. I've read some of the journals of Lewis and Clark where they explored the Northwest Territories of, of the Americas. I wish we had one of their journals. We, we don't hear about the, the animals they encountered. God tells Moses, when you occupy this land, don't wipe out the population too quickly lest you're overtaken by wild animals. This was hostile territory. There's predators there. There's woods so thick here, even in the time of David, when there's a rebellion against Absalom, there's a verse that says in the, the battle that took on in this thick forest against Absalom, it says the forest consumed more men than the sword did. I don't know if you've ever been in territory that thick. These guys go for 40 days into this wilderness and they're rangers. They live out of their backpacks. They probably did encounter some animals. They probably did encounter some impassable jungle. They did encounter some things. And then they ran into the people. And so these guys go out and they, they do this mission before the children of Israel will accept the gift that God has given them. Verse 23. Now the plan pleased me well. So I took 12 of your men, one man from each tribe. They departed and went up into the mountains and came to the valley of Eshol and spied it out. They took some of the fruit of the land in their hands. They brought it back down to us and they brought back word to us saying, It is a good land which the Lord our God is giving us. These guys came back and Joshua and Caleb said, Look at this. They cut down a cluster of grapes that it took two men to carry on a pole. Now, I don't know if that's the size of the grapes or the size of the cluster. What gets me is they said it's a land flowing with milk and honey, two of my favorite things in the world, milk and honey. My dad worked at a dairy when we were little boys. And I love honey. A land flowing with milk. And these guys come back and say, it's as advertised. It's everything God said it was going to be. Verse 26, nevertheless, you would not go up but rebelled against the command of the Lord your God. And you complained in your tents. And you said, the Lord hates us. He has brought us out of the land of Egypt to deliver us into the hand of the Amorites to destroy us. Where can we go up? Our brethren have discouraged our hearts. Nobody in that crowd that's making these accusations touched that land. They never been in it. They never drank out of its streams. They never ate any of its fruit. And yet they come to a conclusion about what they can and cannot do, what they can and cannot have, based on ten guys who are discouragers. Listen to what they said. The, our brethren have discouraged our hearts, saying, the people are greater and taller than we. The cities are great and fortified up to the heavens, and moreover, we have seen the sons of the Anakim there. Their report was, these guys live in big cities. These guys live in strong forts, and the people who live there are Anakim. They're, they're giant. If you look over into uh, Numbers, look at Numbers chapter 13. 
This is from the horse's mouth. Numbers 13, verse 27. And they went and told him and said, We went into the land where you sent us. It truly flows of milk and honey. And this is its fruit. So they're standing there holding this bunch of grapes. Nevertheless, the people who dwell in the land are strong. The cities are fortified. They're very large. Moreover, we saw the descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites dwell in the land of the south. The Hittites and the Jebusites and the Amorites dwell by the mountains. The Canaanites dwell by the sea along the banks of the Jordan. Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, Let us go up at once and take possession, for we are able to overcome it. But the men who had gone up with him said, We are not able to go up against these people. They are stronger than we. And they gave the children of Israel a bad report of the land which they spied out. The land through which we have gone as spies is a land that devours its inhabitants. And all the people whom we saw in it are men of great stature. There we saw giants. The descendants of Anak come from the giants. And we were in our own sight as grasshoppers. And so we were in their sight. This is what discouragement does. Discouragement says I'm going to make a, a comparison between what they are and what we're not. Discouragement says, I'm going to look at all the things that look like they're advantageous. They go from being big guys, they're large guys, to they're giants. In one version it says they call them the Nephilim. Nephilim were these mystic, mythic heroes of old. They go from being big dudes to heffalumps and woozles, just like that. These guys are just, in, and their, their cities are large, and the land devours its inhabitants. Well, if the land eats people up, how do you grow such big people there? You ever wondered that? If the land is so terrible and you can't live there, how do you have these big cities and these big people? Sound like a pretty good place to live. They're growing them tall. They're corn fed apparently over there. But they do not believe the word of God and because of this report they get from their brethren, they don't go. And listen to what discouragement says. Our strength compared to their strength. Our size compared to their size. We saw ourselves as grasshoppers and because we acted like grasshoppers, they saw us like grasshoppers. That's what discouragement does. When you paint a bad picture of the Lord's church when you're at work, you paint a bad picture of the elders and the preacher when you're talking with your kids in the car on the way home, when you paint a bad picture, the, the things that you say they look like is what the people who hear you talk say they look like. It's very, very interesting. That the power of discouragement, if people buy into it, what they are able to do compared to what God is able to do. Verse 29 of Deuteronomy chapter 1. I said to you, do not be terrified or afraid of them. The Lord your God who goes before you, He will fight for you according to all He did for you in Egypt before your eyes in the wilderness where he saw how the Lord carried you as a man carries his son in all the way that you went until you came to that place through that terrible desert. And God was with you, yet for all that you did not believe the Lord your God who went in the way before you to search out a place for you to pitch your tents and show you the way you should go in a fire by night and a cloud by day. These guys came back with their discouraging words, and their discouraging words was number one, they're big, they're fortified, the land is tough, the land is hard, and we can't do anything about them. And their words of discouragement 
caused the children of Israel to forget what God had already done. Now, what God said was, I'm going to give you houses you didn't build, vineyards you didn't plant, wells you didn't dig, the houses will be furnished, all you've got to do is go in and get it, and I'm going to give you a land full of milk and honey. You don't even have to plant new gardens, they're already growing. They, couldn't, they didn't believe it. And then when they start to go in, it's, look at how big these guys are, we can't fight these guys, look how powerful. They just defeated the most powerful army in the world and never shot an arrow. They walked through the Red Sea, and when Pharaoh's army followed them, it closed up on them. The most powerful army in the world was defeated, and nobody from Israel shot an arrow, drew a sword, or pitched a rock. Look what I did to Egypt. You know what he did to Egypt? Not only did he destroy their army, he destroyed their gods. Every one of the ten plagues of Egypt represents a god of Egypt. And God set up the Egyptian pantheon and said, Oh, this is the god of your river. We'll turn out to blood. You, you think this god controls the flies? I'll bring them in and send them out when I want to. You think your most powerful god is, is the god of life and death? Let me show you death. Psalm chapter 78 says... He sent among them a marauding band of angels. Now, I don't know if that is a cumulative phrase describing all the plagues or if it's a specific description of the last plague, a marauding band of angels. I'm not sure if you've ever considered how the firstborn in every house died. It wasn't just that God struck them. If you had blood on your doorpost, something or somebody looked at that blood and passed over it. So think about angels walking through your town, kicking in doors and killing people. Wow. You, you want to talk about these guys are big? And these guys have big cities? Do you remember how big Egypt looked? Do you remember how big their God? Do you remember what God did to their gods, what God did to their army? And by the way, when you went through the wilderness, He carried you as a father carries his son. Jackie used to coach softball at a little park right outside Meridianville. Now, I know when they announced it, they said, I was one of the ministers at Meridianville. It's pronounced Meridianville if you're from there. <laughs> if somebody says, I'm from Meridianville, you go, no, you live there, but you're not from there. But at Meridianville, they had this little softball park, and Jackie would go there and, and coach softball, and just down the hill from that park was a little spring that the beavers had dammed up and made about a three-acre crystal-clear pond with trees growing in it, grew watercress, had a sandy bottom. You could wade out there in that thing and wear the bass out. Get a Texas rig plastic worm and flip it out there. And, and we did that for, for quite a while. I, she'd go coach softball, and I'd go catch fish. Well, then we had a baby. And when she's coaching softball, I had rugrat duty. Well, I decided I'd just take the little one fishing. So I got a little Snoopy life jacket. We'd walk down there to the swamp. I'd put her on my shoulders, give her a little flashlight. Said, now if something happens to Daddy, you go here to the stump, shine your light in there so I can find you. We'd wait out there in that swamp. I'd throw that lure out there, and I'd get a hit. I'd say, hang on, Daddy. If I set to it, she'd grab my ears. I'd set the hook, and little feet would come up. She'd go, roll him up, Daddy. And I'd roll him up. She'd sit there, hold my ears while I fished until the bugs got bad. She'd pat me on the head, Daddy, bugs. The mosquitoes were getting her. We'd wait out of that swamp. Somebody said, weren't you... Weren't you afraid to be in that swamp with that? You know, that baby was the safest baby on the planet Earth when she's sitting on my shoulders. I go anywhere with that baby on my shoulders. She was as safe as anybody on this planet. God said, I carried you 
as a father carries a son. I put you on my shoulders and walked you through that wilderness and what touched you? I showed you where to camp. I went in front of you and said, this is a good place to camp and here's a nightlight, a towering pillow of fire. And in the daytime, here's a cloud that you can follow. And yet everything that God had done and everything that God had said was wiped out and erased by what? A bunch of faithless men who didn't believe. They said, we cannot go up. And I've researched this and I've looked at it and I haven't come to a conclusion, but I want you to consider this. Growing up as a, as a little boy, when they rebel, and God says nobody above a certain age is going to go into this land and they're going to wander in the wilderness, I have the impression that that was ubiquitous. That was everybody in Israel above a certain age. Listen to a couple of things, and I, I want you to maybe reconsider this. Verse, 20, verse 34 of Deuteronomy chapter 1. And the Lord heard the sound of your words, and he was angry. And he took an oath, and he said, Surely not one of these men from this evil generation shall see the good of the land which I swore to give your fathers, except Caleb, the son of Jephunneh. He shall see it, and to him and his children I am giving the land on which he walked, because he wholly followed the Lord. And the Lord was angry with me for your sake, saying, Even you shall not go in there. Joshua, the son of Nun, who stands before you, he shall go in there, encourage him, for he shall cause Israel to inherit it. Not one of these men. Doesn't say the women couldn't go. Look at chapter 2, verse 13. Now rise, cross over the valley of the Zered, and we crossed over the valley of the Zered, and the time we took from Kadesh Barnea until we crossed over the valley of Zared was 38 years until all the generation of the men of war was consumed among the midst of the camp, just as the Lord sworn to them. You know who didn't go into the land of Canaan? The men who were supposed to fight and take it. The men of war. Everybody military age and above. God said, your job was to fight the battle for your families. Your job was to believe the Lord and attack the walled cities and attack the big people, but because of ten guys, ten guys who caused you to focus on what that was rather than what God had done, ten guys caused the entire generation of able-bodied fighting men to die in the desert. Because they would not take the promise of God. That's the power of discouragement. That's the power of believing something is negative when it's not. By the way, when you look at marriage therapy, there's a phenomenon in marriage therapy called negative sentiment override. And negative sentiment override is when one or the other partners in the marriage only begins to look at the negative stuff in the marriage. You sit down with a, with a couple and, and they're having a tough time. Or they've been through a rough spell. And you say, tell me about a time when you've been happy. How many times have you heard somebody say, well, we've never been happy. You've never been happy. 
Well, if you've never been happy and you married him, you can't fix that. That's a special kind of stupid there, all right? At some point, you married this guy because you were in love. At some point, you married this girl because you were in love. I've been to a few weddings. We even pitched one. That's expensive money for folks who aren't happy. You could, for the money, and we didn't give her a big budget. We said, this is your budget if you go past that. But the budget we gave her, I could have bought a rope that would go from the top of El Capitan to the bottom. I'm not saying I was worried about that money, but I figured out how much rope I could buy for the price of that wedding. I'm telling you right now. And, and you, know, you go to that wedding, and you have all these people in, and you decorate the building, and you stand up in front of the preacher, and you play this song that you didn't know was that long, to stand up there and stare at each other while the music plays, and you have these custom-made dresses for all your friends to look bad in, I think, on purpose. And then you say, and I'm going to do everything I can to make you as miserable as possible till one of us dies. No, that's not the way a marriage works, is it? You look at each other with cow eyes and you go, oh, I love you for, you were happy or you wouldn't have got married. And then to sit here in my office and say, oh, we've never been married. <laughs> really? When we think about discouragement, discouragement causes us to think about what's not rather than what is. Discouragement causes us to forget the power of God, what God has done, and what God can do. Discouragement causes us to put more power in the words of a person than in the words of God. And if we are people who use discouragement, who are only talking about what we're not happy with, what we're not pleased with, what we're against, we are an internal cancer to any family, to any organization that we're a part of. Because contaminating words cause us to lose faith, cause us to act faithless. And by the way, when you look at the summary of, of Kadesh and you hear the review of it, when they talk about it in Hebrews chapter 6, he says, you didn't go in because you didn't believe. Actually, Joshua says this and Moses says this both. You didn't go in because you didn't believe. Oh, they, they were afraid. They were discouraged. They were ter- No, no, no. The bottom line is all those fancy words are cover smoke screens for we didn't believe. And discouragement erodes people's faith. And when we are people of discouragement and we talk bad about each other and we talk bad about the elders and we talk bad about our spouses and we only focus on the negative, that's when we become a cancer to any situation we're in. Now what the young man read for us, Ephesians chapter 4. And by the way, let me just say how I'm impressed I am with your young people. We walked in this door and there was this line of pretty little girls. Shook our hands. At some point while we were standing out there visiting, some boys got it in their minds, hey, it'd be probably pretty cool to go stand by those pretty girls. Well done, guys. <laughs> and then these guys who've led prayers, and read, very impressed with the young people. What the young man read for us, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 29, let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth. That word corrupt... The root word there is about an overripe piece of fruit. It's gotten too ripe and it's going to start to do what? It's going to rot. Don't let anything rotten come out of your mouth. Don't let anything bad come out of your mouth. When you talk about somebody, don't talk about the bad that you Don't talk about the worst. It's interesting to me that people who are men or women of discouragement will take a little bit of somebody's life and extrapolate it to their history and to their future. It's called negative cinnamon override. My mom likes to eat Captain D's. 
Several years ago, I was sitting in a, a tree up on top of Putnam Mountain for whatever possessed me to look at my phone on Putnam Mountain because I can't get a cell phone signal up there. I pull my phone up and there's a message that said, your mother's in the hospital. 6.30 in the morning, the last day of deer season. Now I'm in a quandary. Well, I bounced out of the tree, found a guy I was hunting with, said, I got to go. Down the mountain I went, went all the way to Anniston, Alabama in my hunting clothes. Mom thought she was having some kind of episode similar to the episode I had when my intestines ruptured. She got a hold of some bad shrimp at Captain D's. Had food poisoning. My mom will not eat shrimp at Captain D's anymore. I said, Mom, do you realize how many shrimp you've eaten at Captain D's? I, I, I hesitate to know how many shrimp that lady's eaten. But she takes this one order of six shrimp at Captain D's and it has now redefined every shrimp she's ever eaten and every shrimp she's ever going to eat. She doesn't eat shrimp. She doesn't eat shrimp anywhere now. Do we do that with each other? You were rude to me today. You've always been rude to me. You'll be rude to me tomorrow. You let me down. You let me down today. You've always really, really let me down. Isn't it interesting that we will give mental assent to the fact that we are imperfect people? God said, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. At some point when you get old enough to choose between right and wrong, you're going to choose wrong. I'm an imperfect person. I married an imperfect person. We gave birth to a child, and when she got old enough to choose right and wrong, she became an imperfect person. I go to work with imperfect people. I live in a neighborhood of imperfect people, and I go to church with imperfect people, and all of a sudden an imperfect person acts imperfect, and what do we do? It shocks us to death, and we write them off. I'm never going to have anything to do with you again. That's the power of discouragement, only causing us to look at the negative and not look at the positive. Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but only what is good for necessary edification that it may impart grace to the hearers. When I talk to people, when I'm a word user, I don't need to use rotten words. I don't need to use bad words. I don't need to use words that are demeaning or belittling or condescending. I don't want anything coming out of my mouth that's sour. I only want to tell you things that you need to hear to help you be a better person. I'm going to get on my, I'm going to get on the little box here for just a minute. And I'll, I won't be on it long. Matthew chapter 18 says, If your brother sins against you, you go to your brother and him alone and tell him his fault. I'm, I'm a believer in that statement, but I want you to please understand what I think that statement is. Jesus says... If your brother is involved in something that is sin, hamartia, that means my brother is involved in something that is a heaven or hell issue. And if it's a heaven or hell issue, I've got to go to him and say, look, I want you not to go to hell. We need to fix this. And if he won't listen to you, take the elders. If he won't listen to the elders, tell the congregation. But that's about sin. It's not about you hurt my feelings. It's not about you parked in my parking space or sitting in my pew or moving my pillow or you didn't give my kids a bigger graduation present than I gave your kids. We went to your baby shower and you didn't go to mine. Matthew 18 is about correcting people who are in danger of losing their souls. It is not a hunting license for us to be people of discouragement where we go tell somebody, you know, I really didn't like the way you did that. I like the fact that you did this or didn't do that or your kids did this. 
And if it's not a heaven or hell issue, it's not a Matthew 18 jurisdiction. And Matthew 18 is about helping people get to heaven. It's not a hunting license for us to be discouragers. Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but only what is good for necessary edification that it may impart grace to the hearers. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. If you read the book of Ephesians, the purpose of the book of Ephesians is God will say it was my eternal purpose. Before God said, let there be light, He had determined, I'm going to do something with the nation of Israel to bring the Messiah into the world, and when the Messiah gets here, I'm going to bring people who are separated from me together. And I'm going to bring people who are separated together. I'm going to tear down the dividing wall between the Jews and the Gentiles, and I'm going to tear down the dividing wall between me and people. The book of Ephesians, God's eternal purpose, the cross is the plus sign of the universe. I'm going to bring God and people together and people and people together. And you know what discouragement does? You know what corrupt language does? It violates that purpose. It separates God and people, and it separates people and people. And when we are people who are people of discouragement, we grieve, we sadden, we embitter, we disappoint the Holy Spirit. I don't want to be in that camp. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit, by whom you are sealed by the day of redemption. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice, and be kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God and Christ forgave you. When he starts talking about rather than pointing out to people what's wrong with them, we need to find a way to tell people what's right with them. We need to be able to tell our children things that they're doing well. We need to be able to tell our elders things we're doing well. We need to be able to tell our neighbors that are of a different denomination. They're, they're in the denominations and we're in the church. Start those conversations with what we share in common. I believe in the creator God. I believe in the Messiah. And once we can get on that page where we have common ground, you can teach the truth. All you got to do is open your Bible and read it. But how do we typically start out? Well, you're not right, you're wrong, you're doing this, you're doing that, and this is where you're going to go because... That's a form of discouragement. When we talk to people, no corrupt word comes out of our mouth but what is good for necessary edification, that it imparts grace to the hearer. Now, the flip side of this thing is when somebody tells you something and you take those words to heart, who are you giving power in your life, them or God? Everybody of fighting age in Israel could have said, you know what? I think we're just going to walk into that land and see what God, you know, God's already delivered us from the Egyptians. God's already led us through the wilderness. He fed us with manna. He fed us with quail. He made water bubble out of rocks. He's got this glow-in-the-dark cloud that leads us at night, and he's got this big pillar of cloud that leads us in the daytime. And you don't think God can give us this land? I think I'll just get my sword and walk over there and see what happens. But instead, they let those guys, ten guys' words, destroy a nation. And other people's words only have the power you give them. Other people's insults only have the power you give them. When somebody says something to you or about you on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, 
Those words only have power if you give them to them. When somebody says you're ugly, you're not smart, you're not beautiful, you're not brave, you're not whatever, what does God say about it? God says you're valued and valuable. God says you're precious. God says you're holy. God says you're chosen. And if I let the words of other people discourage me from growing as a Christian or from living like a Christian or from being a good husband or being a good wife or being a good child or being a good servant, yeah, people shouldn't be discouraging. But if I let your words have more power in my life than the Word of God, that's really my fault, not yours. Now, there's two sides to this. As a word user, I can't be a corrupt word user. I can't be a person of discouragement. I can't be a person who plants the seeds of faithfulness. But even if I'm out here spreading those lies and rumors, it's still your fault if you buy into them. It's still your fault if you believe them. It's funny, those little kids are coming to my office and they're being bullied at school. And this boy said this about me or this boy said that about me or these girls said this about me. Interestingly enough, I go... Let me tell you something, I'm about to change your life. And they go, okay, and they get ready. And I go, you like broccoli. And they go, no, I don't. No, 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 you do. You like broccoli. No, you, I don't. No, no, you, you, look, look at that. That's a diploma on my wall. I've got a master's degree in psychology. I know the human mind. You like broccoli. No, I don't like broccoli. I've got a license in the state of Alabama as a therapist. You like, I don't like broccoli. And they'll get mad at you. Well, if my words can't make you like broccoli, how come some kid in the seventh grade can make you hate yourself? How come some kid on Facebook can make you feel ugly or stupid or cowardly? We choose who we believe. We choose whether or not we let people's words have power in our lives. And that's the mistake of discouragement. I can't be a person who uses discouragement. But more importantly than that, I don't want to be somebody who's foolish enough to believe discouragement. I want to be somebody who says, let me base what you're saying about me against what God says about me. I, I want to take what you're saying about me and compare what God says. And God says we're loved, we're beloved, we're sanctified, we're holy, we're set apart, and we're cherished. I, I had a discussion with a guy, and he was going through a life crisis. He was popular on TV, popular on the radio, had a presence with a large group of people. His wife was diagnosed with cancer. The guys that he worked for said, we don't want to see your face around here. We don't want to hear on the radio. We don't want to see you on TV. You need to go and be with your wife. He's in the hospital with his wife in New York City. He's walking around the streets of New York City saying, I'm not on TV. I'm not in my pulpit. I'm not with my congregation. I'm not doing the things I need to do. Who am I? He said, and then the thought struck him. He said, I really didn't hear the voice of God. He said, it was almost like God spoke to me. But the thought, the thought struck him was, if being my son is not good enough for you, I can't make you happy. I thought that was powerful. You may not make that baseball team this year. You may not get that promotion this year. You may not get approved for that loan. Somebody may diagnose you with cancer. But if being God's child is not enough for you, I, I, I'm not sure what else will make you happy. Say anything about me you want to say. Accuse me of anything, but if I can sit back in the knowledge that I'm a redeemed child of God, I don't think you should be able to discourage me ever. For God so loved the world 
that he gave. God gave his son for me. I don't care what you say about me. In fact, the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4 very eloquently, it is a very small matter to be judged by a human court. The one who judges me is the Lord. And if we understand how God views us and how God values us, we should be discouragement immune. Because I will put my trust, my faith, my hope in what God says and not what you say. Now there are some things that are true about discouragement. The most discouraging thing in the world is I'm guilty of sin. Because if you're guilty of sin, you do not have the power to fix it. it, it it's, an, it's an unpayable debt. And if we say that we're guilty of sin and don't add to it the plan of salvation, that is the most discouraging thing that can be said because it's truth. When we sin, we are separated from the God who loves us. But because God loves us, He says your sin doesn't have to define your life. It doesn't have to define your past and it doesn't have to define your future because I'm the God who says, I want you to come to me. If you believe that Jesus is the Son of God, you're willing to repent of your sins, change the way that you think, confess Him as Lord, die to yourself, be buried with Him, and rise in baptism. The discouraging power of sin does not exist in your life. Don't be a person of discouragement. Don't be a person who is discouraged. And please don't leave here tonight with the power of sin hanging over you. Come tonight and have the power of sin removed from your life by God's redemption. And once God gives you grace and mercy and faith and salvation, once you have that, nothing else that can be said about us in the world matters because then we're children of God. If you're not a child of God or you're not a faithful child of God, we offer the Lord's invitation while we stand, while we sing.